Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. So good evening, everyone. Uh, welcome to the Institute of World Politics. Uh, I'm Patricia Schuker. I'm an IWP alumni and also founder of the Global Impact Discussion Series. I'm delighted to welcome all guests uh, this evening, especially on a Friday, but a cold one. So hopefully it's a great time to have a discussion. Uh, for those of you who are new to the Institute, uh, IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. Uh, we have five master's programs, um, 18 certificate of study, and a doctoral program. Um, so if you're interested in learning more about any of those, please feel free to speak to uh, one of our staff. So thank you for joining us this afternoon. I'm extremely delighted and fortunate to have uh, one of my great friends, Ali Wine. Uh, at IWP. We've been talking about doing this for so long and finally uh, crossed the bridge. Um, you need no introduction, that's for sure, with your amazing, you know, career. <laughs> um, and I can, I can talk about you for a full hour, but um, I'll just briefly go through your bio before we start. So Ali Wine is a Washington, D.C.-based uh, policy analyst in the RAND Corporation, Defense and Political Science Department. He serves as a non-resident senior fellow with the Atlantic Council's Cowcroft Center for Strategy and Security and a non-resident fellow with the Morden War Institute. Since January 2015, he has been the rapporteur for a U.S. National Intelligence Council working group that convenes government officials and international relations scholars to analyze trends in the world order. Ali served as a junior fellow in the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace um, China program from 2008 to 2009, and as a research assistant to Graham Allison at the Belfast Center for Science and International Affairs from 2009 to 2012. He has also conducted research for Robert Blackwell, Derek Chalet, Harry Kissinger, Wendy Sherman, and Richard Stengel um, from January to, to July 2013. He worked on a team that prepared Samantha Power for her confirmation hearing to be ambassador to the United Nations. From 2014 to 2015, uh, he was a member of the Rand Corporation adjunct staff working for the late Richard Solomon on its um, strategic rethink series. Ali graduated from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology uh, with dual degrees in management, sciences, and political science, and received his master in public policy from Harvard Kennedy School where he was a course assistant to Joseph Nye. While at the Kennedy School, he served on Hillary for America Working Group on U.S. Policy Towards Asia. He's also the, the co-author of Lee Kuan Yew, the Grand Master's Insight on China, the United States, and the World, and the contributing author to Our American Story, The Search for a Shared National Narrative, Power Relation in the 21st Century, Mapping a Multipolar World, and the Rutledge Handbook of Public Diplomacy. He has published extensively in outlets, including New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, and the Boston Globe, and Christian Science Monitor. And in 2012, um, Young Professionals in Foreign Policy and the Diplomatic Courier selected him as one of the 99 most influential professionals in foreign policy under 33. So Ali is a term member of the Council on Foreign Relations, David Rockefeller Fellow with the Trilateral Commission and a Security Fellow with the Truman National Security Project. It's a very impressive resume, Ali. Um, 
So I think it's a perfect time to discuss great power competition. Um, we found ourselves, um, as you will have heard, in the corridors of power and conferences room and think tanks, uh, reading government strategy documents and media coverage on international relations in this new term of not so new, as you will talk about, but of great power competition. To, looking at the drivers and the disruptors. And I think, um, you know, thinking through that topic, um, I encountered a, a very good quote from um, Secretary Rumsfeld, who said, certainty without power can be interesting, even amusing, but certainty with power can be dangerous. And I think it goes really well uh, for, this, for this term. So for all the acrimony in Washington today, um, the city's foreign policy establishment is settling a really rare bipartisan consensus uh, of the world entering into that new era of great power competition. The struggle between the United States and other great powers, the emerging consen consensus holds, uh, will fundamentally shape and shift geopolitics going forward for the good and the ill. Namely, China, Russia, North Korea, Iran will consume your response foreign policy makers in the decade ahead. So how will the international relations change in this era where uh, new actors are challenging the status quo, the status quo? So I think we have the best person for this and I will let, leave Ali to, uh, to discuss that. Can everyone hear me? Yes. I, probably, I probably don't need this, but I guess for, for the live stream. Well, Patricia, thank you so much for uh, for the invitation. Uh, it's it's really a privilege to be here. This is my first time at the Institute for World Politics. It's a very august institution that I hold in, in great esteem. So it's, it's it's really a pleasure to be here. Um, I'll just talk for a few minutes. I have a I have a bad habit if I'm if I'm given the license to to talk uh, indefinitely, and I don't want to do that. I suspect that I have a lot more to learn from you than the other way around, and I really would like to get to the questions and answers and discussions. So I'll just talk a little bit about just my very, very humble, uh, and I should say at the outset that I very much am in the nascent stages of trying to think about great power competition to formulate my own thinking. So I, you know, what I'm going to be presenting uh, this evening is, is really just more a series of hypotheses, propositions. These are really uh, not the most considered judgments, but just preliminary hypotheses. So I'll talk a little bit about what I think are maybe the origins of the construct. Uh, and, and as you said, it, it really is a bipartisan, one of the few genuinely bipartisan constructs uh, in town. So I'll talk a little bit about the origins of the construct um, and a little bit about why I, I take something of a skeptical view of, uh, of, of the construct and then maybe we can open it up to, uh, to questions and answers. So I think that the origins of the construct aren't, um, aren't too difficult to discern, but I think it's nonetheless worth, uh, worth, articulating, uh, worth articulating them. So I think the basic origin is that for almost you know, the better part of two decades after 9-11, the United States was very preoccupied, I think too preoccupied with counterterrorism. So we're now you know, 18 years in Afghanistan, 16 years in Iraq, and this global war on terrorism that it began with, well, it began with an arrow mandate, uh, at least at the time, uh, namely to defeat the Taliban uh, in Afghanistan, to go after the perpetrators of 9-11. But we see now almost two decades later that what began as a narrow mandate has really morphed into uh, a mandate that seems, frankly, indefinite. Uh, doesn't seem to have a geographical focus anymore. It's it's extended well beyond the Middle East, and we really may uh, we may be preparing for a war of a war on terrorism in perpetuity. Um, and I think if you look at the Trump administration's national security strategy, the national defense strategy, they say that essentially we have, and they're pretty explicit in those documents. So we've been focusing too much on counterterrorism. 
And while we've taken this kind of strategic detour, uh, we've seen the return of great power competition uh, and most manifest in the resurgence of China and, and a revanchist Russia. So I, I think, so origin number one, I would say is that just we've, we've been focused on counterterrorism for too long. These great powers have been rising or resurging in, in the case of, of China and Russia, and we need to focus more on, on that theater of competition. The second origin, this one is a little bit more sort of speculative on my part. I think the first, whether you're Republican or Democrat, independent, I think most people would say that that's, that's one of the geneses of great power competition, that we've been focusing too much on counterterrorism. The second one is a bit more speculative, but it, it, it's one that I, it, it's, a, it's a rationale of which I've been, I've been growing more persuaded. And that is that, uh, and I was actually just reading an article about this in the Financial Times, and you know, there have been a lot of reflections on 30 years after the Cold War, 30 years after the fall of the Berlin Wall, and uh, Janan Ganesh, who's a, a commentator for the Financial Times, if you don't read him, I, I would strongly recommend that you do. He's a very, very trenchant observer. And I thought that he had a very sobering column yesterday, and he said that uh, he said that America lost something with the end of the Cold War. And I remember reading that headline and said, that seems kind of odd. I mean, 1989, fall of the Berlin Wall, it's a tremendous moral victory, economic victory, diplomatic victory, on and on. But he said that with the dissolution of the Soviet, the fall of the Berlin Wall and then the formal dissolution of the Soviet Union in 1991, he said that America lost an orienting principle for its foreign policy. And in fact, I actually, after I read his piece, um, I, I did a little bit of research. And it's very interesting that around the time of the fall of the Berlin Wall and then with the, uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union, there's actually a lot of consternation in the American strategic community. Because here we have an orienting principle, a balance of U.S. foreign policy for a better part of half a century, and it's no longer there. And so there was a lot of alarm in the strategic community. What are we going to do? What's going to orient our foreign policy? What is going to be our grand strategy? Because basically for 50 years, now, I should, I should say, I, I don't want to give the impression that, uh, that you know, George Kennan articulated contentment, you know, containment, and it was smooth sailing from there. There was a lot of disagreement among Republicans mm -hmm. and Democrats over how to implement containment. But nonetheless, the, there, was, there was some semblance of consensus at the outset of the Cold War, or at least shortly after the end of World War II, that the Soviet Union was an antagonist, it was our chief antagonist, and that whatever, uh, whatever uh, strategies you use to pursue containment, that whether the Soviet Union's dissolution was brought about from within, whether it was brought about from without, but Republicans and Democrats alike converged upon that objective. And so, and I should not just in the realm of geopolitics, whether in the realm of geopolitics or in the realms of just you know, our day-to-day -day lives, when we have long-standing orienting principles or orienting fixtures that all of a sudden collapse, um, even, if it's, even if it's a collapse that is morally, uh, morally commendable or economically or, and or diplomatically commendable, it, it's somewhat uh, disorienting. And so, my, so it, it's a long-winded way of saying that one of my hypotheses for why great power competition has, has been gaining a lot of traction is that I think that observers in Washington and policymakers are hoping that it will serve the role, it will serve the orienting role that the Soviet Union once did. Um, and again, and, and we can talk about this during the discussion period, I think superficially it makes sense. You see how much progress China's making, you see the amount of disruption that Russia's causing in various geographic theaters, and it makes sense that great power competition should be this kind of renewed ballast, but for reasons that, that, that I'll get into briefly here and that we can talk about more in the Q&A, I, I, I worry that great power competition is, is far less of a a suitable orienting principle than uh, than the imperative of containment was. So I'll just say a few more. Uh, I'll say a few words to to get at my my skeptic to convey why I'm skeptical, and then we can maybe open it up. So there's a there's a quip 
that's allegedly attributed to Yogi Bear, but then again, every other clip is attributed to him. So I, I say this, I'm, I'm not actually sure if he said this, but allegedly Yogi Bear said, if you don't know where you're going, any path will get you there. And I, I, and that quote has been coming to mind, that alleged Yogi Bear clip has been coming to mind again and again when I think about great power competition, because at least as it's presently conceptualized, the, the emphasis is on competition rather than where it is that we would like to go. I mean, competition is a means. Competition is a, it's a tool, it's an instrument, but competition is not in and of itself a strategy. So if I say to you, and I, I sometimes when I attend a, a, events, I sometimes, uh, I, I sometimes get the impression that, that folks think of great power competition as something of an incantation. You say great power competition three times, and a grand strategy will flow forward, and it, I don't think it works like that. We need to first think about what are we competing over, what are we competing towards? Where do we want to go? Uh, but competition in and of itself is just a means. And so I, I was actually talking with a coworker uh, a couple of weeks ago. So we're actually, uh, I work at the Rand Corporation and we've been doing more and more work on great power competition. And I, I guess in a, in a bit of a fit of frustration as we were discussing strategies for great power competition, I said to one of my coworkers, I, I said, let's leave aside the realm of geopolitics. And I said, just to kind of, I said, I'm gonna give a, a, a somewhat facetiously, but to give an analogy to make the point, I said, imagine, uh, leave aside the realm of geopolitics, and let's say, let's say we were to go to Michael Phelps, arguably one of the greatest swimmers in the world. Now, 99 times out of 100, if I go to Michael Phelps and say, okay, you're going to be competing in the Olympics, you'll be swimming this number of meters, you'll be competing against, or swimming against these opponents, 99 times out of 100, he's going to win. Because he knows, he knows the boundaries of the competition. He knows his opponents, so he can study their style. He knows how many laps of the pool he has to swim. And so... And he's, he's incredibly strong, impeccable training. So that's scenario one. And I think that that's a good scenario for competition when the, when the competition is delimited and I know what I have to do. But now let's say that the next day after Michael Phelps has won, presumably has won, I go to Michael Phelps and I say, okay, I have a slightly more expansive task that I want you, or a slightly more amorphous task that I want you to undertake. And he says, okay, well, what is it? And I say, Michael, swim. Okay, well... Well, where do you, how many laps of the pool do you want me to swim? Just swim, okay? Now, because Michael Phelps is Michael Phelps and he has an extraordinary, probably has extraordinary superhuman lung capacity, he'll be able to swim for a long time. But at a certain point, even Michael Phelps is going to succumb to exhaustion and he's going to come back and say, well, where do you want me to go? And if I just say, keep swimming, keep swimming, well, at a certain point, he's going to collapse. And it's a very, very, it's obviously a very stylized and somewhat facetious comparison. But the point is that... Um, the United States, despite its preponderance of power, even the United States, it has fiscal limits. It has limits of strategic bandwidth. It cannot be everywhere at the same time. Uh, it can, now, it can be, I, should, I, I take that back, it can be omnipresent, but being omnipresent and being ubiquitous and trying to prioritize every region and every part equally is not a strategically solvent course of action. And so you can have a foreign policy that is not strategic. And what I worry about the great power competition as it is presently conceptualized with an emphasis on competition and, and really not a commensurate discussion of steady states, where it is we want to go, it seems to me that it's, it's, it's a recipe for strategic insolvency. And so what I would like to see more of, I'm not averse to being in the abstract to be more competitive. I, I, I think you know, Michael Phelps should be more competitive, America should be more competitive, but I think that we need to think about which regions should deserve more of our attention, which threats should deserve more attention. Um, and, and just one last comment, and then we can open up to Q&A. Uh, just to, to, to make this concern of mine a little bit more concrete. So both the Trump administration and the Obama administration, so I, I don't want to give the impression that this is really a partisan point, but Republican and Democratic administrations alike have been saying for years that we need to focus on the Asia Pacific, or I guess in more recent parlance, the Indo-Pacific. 
And the Obama administration, so in 2012, it famously articulates it's at the outset of 2012, it says we need to rebalance a divergent necessity to the Asia Pacific. And almost immediately upon issuing its rebalance strategy, uh, Syria started devolving ever further into civil war and chaos. And so a number of observers said, President Obama, you were too quick to jump the gun and to articulate this rebalance. You know, the Middle East is calling, uh, the Middle East is calling, we need you back. Then, of course, you know, Russia invades uh, Ukraine, annexes the Crimea, and, and even more observers pile on and say, look, Mr. President, uh, the Asia-Pacific may be important, but you just can't you know, walk up and out of the Middle East. You can't forget about Eastern Europe. <laughs> Similarly with the Trump administration, the Trump, uh, then-candidate Trump and now-president Trump has said, we've been you know, shedding, too much, uh, you know, shedding too much blood in the Middle East. We've been hemorrhaging too much money in the Middle East. We need to get out of these endless wars, which is a, it's a phrase that's been catching on. And, and he, too, has prioritized, perhaps even more than the Obama, President Obama, really has prioritized the China challenge. I, I think it's fair to say that President Trump has been animated probably more by, by the resurgence of China than by any other foreign policy challenge. But he, too, now is facing calls to, to rebalance, I guess re-rebalance, uh, back to the Middle East um, after, after sort of partial withdrawal from Syria. We're seeing concern, renewed concerns about a resurgence of the Islamic State uh, and concerns about tensions with Iran. Uh, and tensions with Iraq, as Iraq seems to be ever more brittle. And so there are a number of observers who are saying, look, the Middle East, you can't, and there actually are now observers who are saying, the United States will never be able to leave the Middle East. It can't leave the Middle East. It has too many strategic equities there. And that this kind of rebalancing notion is something of a fantasy. But the point is that Republican or Democrat alike, we've allowed on paper that we need to rebalance to the Asia-Pacific or the Indo-Pacific, but we just can't seem to do it. And a foreign policy that admits a foreign policy that admits the necessity of trade-offs in the abstract, but actually admits not in practice, that's not a, that is not a strategic foreign policy. And so, it's a, you know, I can go on and on. I get very animated about this. Uh, this is actually not the effect of caffeine. This is just, I'm very, very passionate about this issue. Uh, but I, so, b bottom line, I think the great power competition superficially captures important elements of what are going on. We see a resurgence in China, a revanchist Russia. We have been preoccupied, I think, with counterterrorism for too long. We do need to be thinking about how do we deal with, with China and Russia? But I think that the way in which we deal with China and Russia is very important. We need to be very careful that we not lump China and Russia together analytically. We do need to recognize that if we are going to prioritize the Asia-Pacific or the Indo-Pacific, by necessity, that means that we will relatively be prioritizing the Middle East less and relatively prioritizing Eastern Europe less. And that is, it's an unfortunate reality of a foreign policy that even the world's preponderant power has to face. So. I can, I, I can obviously uh, uh, go on uh, at length about this, but why don't I stop there and, and resume the conversation. Thank you, Ali. I think it's great because it will allow us to uh, reflect on it and actually discuss. And I'd like to ask you about um, a quote from uh, Richard Haas, who was a former official in the um, George W. Bush administration. When he testified to the, to the U.S. Senate in 2008, he said, and I quote, challenges derived from globalization will dominate, dominate the century. And that great power competitions and conflict is no longer the driving force of international relations. I would love to see how do you see that. And that was 2008. So not speaking for Richard Haas, but uh, see where you stand on that 10 years later. Well, I would say that, I mean, I, I wouldn't frame that choice. I wouldn't frame it as a sort of an either or. And I think that what we're seeing now is that challenges of globalization are still very much at the fore and are still very much with us. But there's sort of a new category of challenges that that, that animates observers in Washington. So I, I think it's I think it's fair to say that we need to continue. So in terms of extant challenges of globalization, climate change obviously is still with us. 
uh, illicit financial flows, proliferation. Actually, something we might talk about is renewed concern about nuclear proliferation with the, the collapse of the INF. And now New START seems to be, and it could expire in February of 20, I think January of 2021, but um, New START is basically the one pillar left, sort of the main pillar left of the nuclear non-proliferation regime because the MPT is more symbolic than, than binding. And so um, a lot of those challenges are still, you know, the, the potential for uh, pandemics. So it's not that challenges of globalization have uh, disappeared. They remain very much with us. And actually, uh, there are new challenges that we have to contend with under that globalization bucket. So what happens if there's even a partial decoupling trade and technological between the United States and China? What would the impact be for the global economy? What would the impact be for global supply chains? Uh, we've seen a resurgence of nationalism, resurgence of populism, uh, a, a migration slash refugee crisis. So we actually now have a number of new challenges of, of globalization, but also we are now seeing like China between you know, 2008 and today, it's, it's kind of remarkable. Uh, it's remarkable how much progress China has made economically in particular just in the past 10 years. Uh, I mean, I, I, and I, just to, to go back a little bit further, I mean, I remember when I started college, in 2004, you remember the BRICS formulation? We have Brazil, Russia, India, China, and, and then I forget when South Africa got got tacked on. But I mean, when I started college, China. Most observers refer to China. They just kind of lumped it in with the rest of the BRICS, and then hence the the acronym. Uh, by the time I graduated, uh, China's economy, if, I, if memory serves, China's economy had its overall economy had doubled in size. Its military, its official military spending had grown by something like 70 percent. And so 2008 comes and observers are saying, okay, well, China's maybe, not, it's not a superpower on part of the United States, but it, it doesn't really analytically make sense to lump it in with the rest of the BRICS. This is really a category, or sort of an actor variably uh, in, its own, in its own class. And then, of course, 2008 happens. We have the financial crisis. We have the Beijing Olympics that are occurring, occurring within a, about a month of each other, and maybe, maybe even less. And then observers are saying, okay, China really, really is sort of, a, this is a different category of actor. And now here we are about a decade later, and we're talking about China as potentially uh, being on par, or at least rapidly approaching the point where it might be, when it might be on par with the United States. Um, and you know, since we are, uh, you know, since we are here on uh, you know, commemorating the 30-year anniversary of the end of the, uh, you know, the Cold War and the fall of the Berlin Wall, I think it, it's interesting uh, to actually to invoke a quote uh, from Václav Havel, uh, and it goes to show just how quickly geopolitics has changed, even just in the past 10 years. So Václav Havel, he comes to Congress in, I believe, early 1990, and he gives a speech. And he, So by this point, obviously, the Soviet Union hasn't formally dissolved, but the Berlin Wall has collapsed. And Václav Havel, he gives a pretty rare speech for, for a, a foreign dignitary, a speech before a joint session of Congress. And he's reflecting on how quickly uh, the Soviet Union is disintegrating. And it's important, just by way of context, that even, you know, even in the mid-1980s, uh, uh, there were a number of intelligence officials, foreign policy, uh, foreign uh, uh, foreign policy officials in the United States who thought that the Soviet Union might well endure for another few decades. And then there was a recognition that some of its internal economic contradictions were growing more apparent, but there was still a feeling that the Soviet Union was going to be an existential challenger for, for the United States for, for several decades at least to come, and then all of a sudden it starts disintegrating. So Václav Havel comes to Congress, and, he, and he's reflecting on the pace of disintegration of the Soviet Union, and he says, and I'm, I'm roughly quoting him, he says, developments have been occurring so rapidly that we have not yet had time to be astonished. And I, I just, every time I, and I find myself revisiting that quote again and again, because I think there's a similar sentiment that applies to the resurgence of China. Uh, I mean, if you had said in 2000 or in 2000, frankly, even in 2009, that China would be where it is today, I, I just think, I suspect that even Chinese leaders wouldn't have believed they would be 
where they are today. So I, I think that there is something similar that, so it's, so, you know, so Richard Haas's observation, I suspect that frankly many of his contemporaries in 2008 would have agreed. I mean, I think at the time, because in 2008, did he, I don't know, if, did he give that quote in late 2008 or early 2008? So if it's late 2008, so right now people's uh, attention is riveted on the financial crisis and people are talking about the global financial crisis, they're talking about emergency coordination between the G20, the sort of anachronism of the post-war uh, post, uh, post institutions. And so it makes sense that a lot of people would be talking about, uh, would be talking about challenges of globalization. And in 2008, yes, China's economy was certainly, uh, it was growing rapidly, but I don't think that it was, it, it, we hadn't seen the militarization of the South China Sea. We certainly, obviously, we, you know, we hadn't seen, uh, we we hadn't seen the arrival of Xi Jinping, who took China in a much more uh, assertive direction. Uh, we hadn't seen uh, a number of the challenges that we see now that are emerging as a result of of China's more uh, assertive direction and U.S.-China tension. So I think it's per and, and also we hadn't seen the annexation of uh, of Crimea and Russia at the time that yes, it had invaded Jordan and hived off uh, two territories. Um, South Ossetia and Ossetia from Georgia, but it, it, I don't think it was as disruptive as it is now. So I actually don't think, I, I actually wouldn't disagree with his assessment. I think, and I, even now, I would say that the only modification I would make to his assessment, and if I were to be uh, so presumptuous as to speak for him, I suspect that he would probably say as well, if he were revisiting that assessment, that it's, it's not an either or, it's, it's both and. So it's challenges of globalization and challenges of great power conflict. And I think that's really interesting, especially when you mention the BRICS, which are almost things from the past when you look at that whole formulation. But to put what you said into perspective, I mean, 20 years ago, China's economy was one pence size of the, the United States. In 2019, it's two-thirds as big. And it's based on the current trajectory for 20, uh, 2039, it will be more than 10% larger. And I think those numbers are extraordinary, but even... Back to the BRICS point, India will have leapfrog Germany and Japan to claim, you know, the number third, the number three spot in global um, ranking, and Vietnam is closing up as the top twenty. So we're definitely seeing new alliances, new shifts going on. And I appreciate you, your point on, you know, competition itself not being a strategy. And I think it's a very valid point when you look at the technology aspect, U.S. versus China. While China developed its 5G, well, no, well, the United States developed its 5G. China is already testing 6, 6G. Um, I and should I, just say that, I should just say to make some money that, hey, everyone, I should post on social media that I'm investing in 7G. 7G, yeah. I'd be able to retire tomorrow. Yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, that brings the idea of we need to stop circling about the issue of, um, you know, should we, should we not, and really stay on the top of, of of the issues, what are the aim? What are the aims that we're trying to achieve? How do we tend to do it? And what are the risks? So those, are, I think, should be the three points that we should invest in. But the consequences of the U.S., you know, lagging behind in, in the technology industry is not just purely commercial. Um, and I'm sure you, you can expand on that. And the more Chinese technology and Chinese manufactured telecommunication parts proliferate, uh, the more China threatens American <coughs> communication network dominance um, and and gain more into the staying at the top uh, in terms of all the intelligence gathering, especially. So I wanted to ask you, um, is the United States actually investing in the right tools and capabilities? And how, how do you see that moving forward in this whole technology warfare almost? 
So I, I would actually take us back a few years. Um, I would take us back a few years. So one of the, uh, and I, I think that this, was, now this occurred during the Obama administration, but I, I think it proved to be sort of eerily proved to be a harbinger for some of the difficulties we're having in competing with China now. So this is in 2015, and uh, China has proposed the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, and I think, I think in the final tally, I want to say there were 56 or 57 countries that agreed to be founding members of the bank. And prior to, uh, prior to that vote or prior to that uh, selection, so to speak, the United States had been very, very vigorously lobbying its friends and partners in Europe and Asia, don't join the bank, don't join the bank. The Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, it's, it's a Chinese-led institution. We can't vouch for its standards. We can't vouch for its transparency. And we ended up with egg on our face. I think the only, I think the only major ally or friend uh, in Europe or Asia that I think went along with us, I think it was Japan. I think Japan declined to be, and they still are upset, <laughs> upset with us to this day because they ended up being very, they ended up feeling very isolated. They had expended a lot of political capital explaining why they were siding with the United States. But anyhow, so I, I, I give that anecdote because I, I think it's symptomatic. Uh, or it, it was, I think, uh, prescient in, in sort of foretelling an approach that the United States is increasingly taking, which is that rather than, I, I, I feel like more and more of the focus in Washington is, is more on how do we outshine China, rather than how do we become a more dynamic version of our best selves. And what I, what I worry about is that the United States isn't China. It can't become China. It shouldn't try to become China. It would lose everything, virtually everything, that makes America America were it to try and become China. And so... And also, that's one point, but also just think about sort of, think about that framing. You know, I, I hear a lot when I attend events, you know, China has made in China 2025, America needs made in America 2025. China has an AI 2030 strategy, America needs an AI 2030 strategy. Now, uh, every time, you know, and this is a recipe for, frankly, this is a recipe for paranoia and exhaustion. I mean, China, and I think that China recognizes this kind of Achilles heel in, in sort of the American psyche, but when they put out initiatives, whether they, they implement initiatives or at least announce initiatives almost on the daily. And if we judge our, if our metric for success in being competitive vis-a-vis -vis China and vis-a-vis -vis others is we have to match every flurry of initiatives and declarations, my gosh, we're going to run out of gas really fast. And you know, take the Belt and Road Initiative as another example. It is indeed, it is a very, very serious undertaking. It is a, in terms of dollars, in terms of China's geoeconomic footprint around the world, but we've seen more and more there's backlash against the Belt and Road Initiative. We don't always know uh, whether a certain a certain investment actually materializes. There's been criticism of certain initiatives that that hire that that employ local labor that employ uh, sorry Chinese labor rather than local labor. Questions about environment, et cetera, et cetera. So, so I, I think the first point that I would make is that before we even get into a discussion about are we are we adequately resourced for this competition. First, we need to be thinking about uh, you know, compete, you know, competing with ourselves com rather than competing with China or trying to compete on its turf, number one. Number two, again, where are we trying to go? Um, are we, and this is why one of the concerns I have about formulations such as you know, a U.S.-China race in 5G or a U.S.-China race in quantum computing, when I say the word race, race implies that, both, that A and B are going towards the same place. Now, if the United States and China are indeed going towards the same place in a given capability, then, then race perhaps makes more sense. But if China is if China has different objectives than we do, then then the word race doesn't really really apply. Uh, number two, number three, uh, and I think that we're seeing this more and more. I think it's because we actually don't know where it is that we would like to go, and not just in five G, but I, I think in a whole host of arenas, because we don't know where we want to go. There's more and more of a focus on how do we thwart China's continued descent. 
So if you look at the if you look at the Trump administration's strategy for competing with China, there's much more of an emphasis on how do we stop what China how do we stop China from doing what it wants to do rather than on offering or articulating an affirmative U.S. agenda. So we see this in discussions of export controls. We see this in discussions of um, well, and I think the export controls. I think that right now they're still in the kind of the, the discussion phase. They haven't yet been implemented, but they're being seriously considered in the administration. But whether it's putting tariffs, this ever escalating uh, campaign of tariffs on Chinese exports, attempts to blacklist Chinese companies. Now, in the short term, because America is is unilaterally so strong, in the short term, we can cause China a lot of problems. And I think that if you look at, at if you look at Chinese data. Uh, the Chinese rate of economic growth has slowed down. I think that their state-run model of economic growth is starting to run out of gas. Um, and, and a lot of the founders and, and top officials at the big Chinese companies, Huawei, ZTE, ha have said, "Look, we're, we basically this is sort of this is make it or break it." Um, the actually the uh, the founder, uh, I, I believe, the, the founder and, and the head of Huawei basically sent a, a pretty stark memo to its employees and basically said, "You know, this is this is it. If we don't." If we don't figure out a way to substitute away from the United States now, this would be a death knell for the company. And so, yes, the United States unilaterally, by imposing unilateral punitive measures, it can cause China a lot of headaches. The question is, and I, I was talking with someone not too long ago who put the matter pretty starkly. He said that also for the United States, he says, if we don't, and, and I, I apologize for the language, it's quite, um, you know, quite crude, but I, I think it shows sort of the level of concern in the United States. He says, he was talking about Huawei and ZTE, he says, Ali, he said the, the, the remit, the competitive remit for the United States is we have to strangle the baby in the cradle. And he's basically referring to Huawei and ZTE. He says that if we don't, we've lost. Um, but my concern is that uh, I see a lot of kind of crowing in the United States. Oh, look, look at sort of the woes of Huawei and the woes of ZTE, and look, their rate of growth is slowing. That's a short-term snapshot. Uh, by virtue of necessity, China will have to accelerate its push for indigenous innovation, for self-reliance. It will have to find alternative <coughs> export markets. It will have to diversify away from the U.S. dollar, from U.S. export markets. It will have to find alternative suppliers of high-tech inputs. And we, now, we're not going to see the results of those various uh, parallel streams of that. We're not, we're not going to see the results tomorrow. But I, th I think that we in the United States, I, I think that we would be remiss if we were, if we were to assume that, that China's short-term woes are going to be long-term ones. I, and what I worry about is that 15 or 20 years hence, and maybe even sooner, because China is already, I think, showing signs that it's diversifying away. What I worry about is, if we believe that dealing with China today is difficult, which it absolutely is, and dealing with the, with dealing with interdependence with China is vexing, which it is, imagine dealing with China 10, 15, or 20 years hence, and just pointing to the data that you were deciding about these projections. Imagine dealing with a China 10, 20 years hence, that is economically the aggregate far larger, far less constrained by economic interdependence with the United States, far less dependent on the United States for supplies of high-tech inputs, far less dependent on the United States as, as, a, as a absorbing its exports. If we think that dealing with China today is difficult, imagine dealing with that China. And what I worry about, there's a lot of talk in, in D.C. about decoupling, about trying to, to sever linkages with the Chinese economy. And while interdependence is problematic, um, interdependence, however problematic it is and has been, it's, it, it offers us one of the few sort of residual forms of leverage that we have over China. I think that right now, just given China's economic descent, uh, it's not clear to me what leverage America has, certainly not unilaterally, over China's political trajectory, over its human rights record, um, over its growth model. I think the one leverage that we have, or that we've had up until now, has been, look, uh, China, we, we, more than any other single country, we absorb a tremendous amount of your exports, and you wouldn't want to, you wouldn't want to make us upset. But if we if we sort of jettison interdependence sort of unilaterally or try to do so, I think that it may end up proving a pyrrhic victory, in which we slow down China in the short term, 
but we end up facing a decline of 10 or 15 years, hence it's much larger and harder to deal with. So, um, so I, I think that it, it's a way of saying that one of the, I think the big challenges for the United States and in partnership with China is rather than, rather than framing the discussion of decoupling and interdependence as a binary, that we either maintain our, our present configuration of interdependence, which is very problematic, or we just decouple. You know, decoupling and interdependence, they're not binary phenomena. They encompass a very, very wide continuum of states. And so I think that one of America's economic come strategic imperatives for the decades to come is, is there an intermediate form of interdependence that we can achieve with China that preserves some kind of baseline of commercial benefit, a stabilizing benefit, but that mitigates some of the security risks? It's obviously a lot easier to discuss in the abstract. But it's, it's all a way of saying that I, I think I worry more and more that if we focus purely on trying to stop country X, and we're not making the commensurate investments in ourselves. That's that to me. That and also the, what's what message are we sending to our partners? We're not sending a message of confidence. We're projecting anxiety. A lot of questions for you, but I will open to the audience now. So please introduce yourself and um, ask a question. Thank you. Yeah. So, can you expand on uh, U.S. Army fellow Frank Stanko? Uh, so, we talk about big power competition. I got it. I understand what you're saying about strategy. And so, but there, are, but we know that there are things that are happening, and. Part of the strategy is, you know, what objectives do you want to achieve? Uh, an illustrative is, do you think that, now I'm going to put it in a national security context, that the, the actions in the South China Sea cannot continue. Because if they continue, you know, then you, you at some point become, you know, unable to undo Because we know where they want to go. So can you expand from a national security perspective of what we need to do? Because you're talking, you've laid out the problem, great. And you know, I've been a number of think tanks, and everybody lays out the problem. But what We're we, much better at doing that. But we don't talk about, okay, here's what you need to do. Uh, and so if you could articulate some of those things, that would be Absolutely, and it's it's really important. Just a, a quick comment on the South China Sea, and then, and then I, I promise I'm not alighting your question. Just a quick comment on the South China Sea, and then and then your question. So, it's I'm afraid actually the South China Sea. And I, I think you were probably alluding to this in your question. I think that that more or less is a fait accompli. I mean, if you remember, I think this was in September of 2015, but when you know Chairman Xi was standing alongside President Obama and said, you know, on the Rose Garden, we will not militarize the South China Sea, and now we obviously see here we are four years later, and you know. We should continue to do FONOPs, and we should be, you know, sail wherever international law permits us to do so, but I, I fear that those are, at this point, largely symbolic actions. And, um, and and again, to the extent that we're publicizing symbolic actions, I think, again, we're betraying anxiety rather than projecting confidence. But that's, that's just a, a quick comment on the South China Sea. In terms of what we should be doing, uh, a lot, a lot, and, and I should say that the, the various you know, the various strands of effort that I'll articulate, I don't know that they necessarily amount to sort of a coherent long-term objective. A, and, and I recognize that there's a, there's a certain you know, sanctimony in my own, on the one hand, saying that with great power competition, we haven't articulated a steady state, and you've, you've put the challenge to me, well, okay, 
articulate your own steady state, so I recognize that my answer is probably going to be limited. But there are certainly, I think, a few steps that we can and should take. The first is, you know, for, you know, for folks, I, I you know, uh, uh, friends who are uh, in, in medicine, first rule is first do no harm. Uh, and one of the one of my biggest concerns about our present course of action is that we are we are actively undermining some of our own core sources of unique competitive advantage. So, number one, uh, for the next president, whether it's or whether President Trump is reelected or whether whether a Democrat is elected, I think we're going to have to do a lot of work to. Uh, restore our alliance network, and I think our alliance network is one of our critical forms of competitive <coughs> advantage, so much so that even a number of Chinese IR scholars and, and, uh, and individuals in the government say that until and unless China is able to establish a sort of a parallel network of alliances or partnerships, it will, it will be unable to ultimately contest uh, the United States with world preeminence. Uh, this is in 2011, um, Yan Tong, who's a professor, I believe, at Tsinghua University, either Tsinghua, I think it's Tsinghua University. He wrote an op-ed in late 2011 in the New York Times called How China Can Defeat America. So not too much subtlety there, but it's helpful for the candor uh, and, and for being a, a bracing piece. And in the piece, he talks about it in his, in his judgment. He, he says here are a number of competitive advantages he believes that China has. But he says, and this is, I think, a very important judgment that he's actually doubled down on since. Uh, he says that the United States has an unrivaled network of alliances. He says China has transactional partnerships, it doesn't have alliances. And so he says, until and unless China can develop what he calls more high-quality friends, he says that China will be unable to displace the United States as the world's preeminent power. So step number one, this in terms of doing damage control, we have to we have to reinvest in what I think many Chinese observers would argue is our principal unique competitive advantage, and that is our network of alliances. Two, uh, in terms of reinvigorating our economy at home. A lot of actions that we've taken at home, they're not China's fault, they're not Russia's fault, they're our own fault. So for example, uh, at the peak of the Cold War, and I, I may be getting the, the, the number wrong, but if I, if I remember correctly, at the peak of the Cold War, sort of in, in our Sputnik moment in the 1960s, I think roughly, I think something like roughly one and a half percent or 1.6 percent of America's federal budget was, was being allocated towards investments in basic scientific and technological research. Now that, that fraction, it's about a half percent or 0.6%. That's, that's our decision. That's, that's nobody else's decision. And when America, I mean, America still has an unrivaled uh, ecosystem of innovation, an unrivaled system of higher education, and when we put those assets to use, and, and also our private sector, when we, when we really, we've seen a breakdown in this so-called kind of innovation triangle between government, government, academia, and the private sector. Um, and so in terms of restoring that innovation triangle, getting that 0.5 or 0.6% fraction back up towards its Cold War era levels, that, that's a decision that's entirely within our control. And that's going to be essential if we really want to be competitive in terms of, you know, Patricia, you were talking about 5G. Whatever technology you're talking about, whatever, how, whichever races, however you conceive them, whether it's quantum computing, 5G, 6G, apparently, that we're getting into now, whatever technology you're talking about, uh, we have to make sure that that fraction gets, up, gets back up to its Cold War Air levels, and some of some of the steps that we need to take are a little bit more, a little bit more abstract. They're a little bit more intangible, but I think that they're nonetheless they're no less important. When I think about what makes America the world's preeminent power, yes, it has an unrivaled ability to project military power. It has the world's largest, most technologically sophisticated economy. But America also stands for an idea. There's a there's a quote that I often um, come back to. There's a and it comes from a French philosopher, Raymond Aron. So Raymond Aron writes a piece, I think it's for the French Review of Political Science or Journal of Political Science, in early 1953. And he says that the strength of a great power is diminished if it ceases to serve an idea. 
And I think that that's a very, very powerful observation. And so, you know, I, I'm a child of immigrants. I was born in the United States. My parents are my parents are from Pakistan. And in order for two 20-somethings to leave everything they know, come to a country about which they don't know much, they don't, you know, they, they, don't, they didn't know many people when they left uh, in the 1980s. They didn't know many people in the United States. Uh, they were leaving everything behind. But they were so convinced, not, and they were so persuaded, not by America's military size or its economic size, but by the power of the American idea. That's what drew them. And I, I fear... I fear that that idea is losing some of its luster. Um, and abstract, um, abstract gaps or abstract deficiencies can translate into concrete strategic deficits if they begin to accumulate over the long run. If, over the long run, more and more individuals believe that, you know, maybe the United States is not where I want to come to set up my business, or it's not where I want to uh, come to go to school, you know, from year to year, it may not seem like those differences amount to much, but over the long run, those differences matter. And so I think we need to take steps to restore the power of the American idea so that America is seen as being as welcoming to immigrants as being welcome to foreign talent, whether they want to set up businesses or attend uh, school here. Uh, a few more points, and, and, then, uh, and then I'll stop. Uh, and some of the points, uh, these, are, these are not earth-shattering revelations. These, at, at this point, they are tropes, but I, I think they're almost cliches, but I think that they're no less important for being cliches. We have to do something about our, our, our fiscal solvency. Uh, our debt crossed $23 trillion for, for the first time uh, quite recently. And I think that some, the United States, uh, being the world's preeminent power, is both a blessing and a curse in this regard. Uh, it's a blessing in that we can elide the necessity for strategic choice for far longer than any other country. But it's a curse for that very same reason. Um, because we, we tend to think, well, hey, we're the United States. We can keep running up the debt. Other countries will continue to finance our debt, and the United States were so strong that we don't really have to make strategic choices. But at a certain point, a reckoning is going to come, and when that reckoning comes, it's going to, when that reckoning comes, it's going to be very, very painful. We have to get our fiscal house in order. And right now, by letting our debt go up and up and up, we are sending a message not only to our domestic constituents, but we're sending a message to our partners and friends of ours and to our competitors, importantly, that we, that we are fiscally profligate and that we don't care to take corrective actions. Also, political polarization, I know it's a trope, and it, it is a trope, and it's cliché, but um, I worry very much. How can you, and I was actually, the, the same co-worker from Rand that I mentioned, who I mentioned uh, a, few, a few minutes ago, I was having, this was part of the same conversation, we were talking about great power competition, and I said to him, I said, how in the world are we going to deal with a resurgent China and a revanchist Russia if we are so divided here at home? You know, during the Cold War, you know, we, we, you know, we pine for the days of the Cold War in part because, um, and we pine for the days of uh, sort of the, the, the Second World War in part because an existential challenger is able, to, is able to mobilize the American public. It's able to mobilize the American policymaking apparatus. And we say, look, whatever our internal partisan divisions, we need to put them aside or at least temporarily shelve them because we need to come together in the service of a shared purpose. And I worry right now that our partisan, our partisan polarization has become so extreme that we've accorded greater priority to settling political scores and waging political retribution against one another here at home than on dealing with external challengers. And as, of course, Abraham Lincoln said, you know, a house divided can't stand. And so I, I actually think that as much as I, you know, I'm, I'm happy to talk about great power competition all night, but in some sense I think that discussion is almost a moot point if we can't get our own internal act in order. So it's a very impoverished answer to your very important question, and I realize that there's a very marked gap between the importance of your question and the impoverishment of the answer that I gave you. But I would say there are a number of concrete steps that we can take, whether it's revitalizing our network of alliances, whether it is getting our, our, our fiscal house in order, whether it is, um, and, and, and also thinking about, 
Um, and this is a question actually that I, I have, uh, uh, to which I had no good answers, but I think it's a question that we really, really need to focus on. Is the United States capable of articulating a coherent grand strategy in the absence of an existential challenger? Uh, and there's a reason why I think we're seeing more and more discussion of can China be, can China furnish a new Sputnik moment? Can China be the Soviet Union 2.0? There have been more and more op-eds coming out recently saying, even if China isn't the Soviet Union 2.0, let's make it into a Soviet Union 2.0 so that we can mobilize that, that sense of national purpose that we've lost. I think that's dangerous for, for reasons that I can go into, but you understand the appeal. Um, one last point on this. You know, the, one of the scholars, come practitioners, uh, who was actually most uh, prescient about warning about, uh, and we were talking about this harkens back to what we were discussing earlier, uh, who warned about the dangers of trying to uh, formulate a grand strategy and trying to sort of contrive an existential challenger when there isn't one, is none other than George Kennan. So George Kennan, he's invited on the occasion of his 90th birthday in 1994. So the Council on Foreign Relations invites him and says, Mr. Kennan, we'd like you to reflect on containment. How well has it held up? Uh, well, and I believe, that the, I believe that the title of the speech, uh, that in, it's published on the New York Times' website, I believe the title of the speech was, I think March 14, 1994, it's called The Failures and Our Success. And George Kennan says one of the biggest dangers in his view, and I think he proved to be very uh, prescient uh, you know, 25 years ago, he said that for the past 60 years, so this is now dating to the 1930s when we were dealing with a fascist Japan, he says that for the past 60 years, whether you look at fascists, our struggle against Japan, our struggle against Nazi Germany, and then our, our nearly half-century-long struggle against the Soviet Union, he said that our foreign policy-making apparatus has been so caught up with dealing with existential challengers that we aren't configured to deal with a foreign policy's landscape in which such a challenger doesn't exist. And so that's why I made the point earlier that in 1991, while, while the American public and many segments of the American policy-making apparatus were, were saying, finally, we defeated the Soviet Union, there was some kind of quiet concern. What are we going to do now? And Jim Woolsey, when he was testifying uh, to be confirmed as the head of the CIA, he said, we have a conundrum here in the strategic community. He says, we have slain the dragon, but we now live in the jungle inhabited by a bewildering variety of poisonous snakes. And we still haven't overcome that problem. We still, right now... We, are, we don't have that existential dragon, but we are dealing with, with a jungle full of poisonous snakes. So can we forge a grand strategy or some semblance of a coherent foreign policy absent a Soviet-like menace? George Kennan said that there would be a, a temptation to try to, come, to contrive an existential challenge, and I think we're seeing that 25 years later. People are saying, even if China isn't exactly like the Soviet Union, let's figure out a way to make it a Soviet Union-like menace so that we can uh, forge a coherent policy. So, very, very long-winded and impoverished answer to your question, but I, I hope that there are some, at least, uh, some kernels on which we can, we can discuss later. Do you have time for one more question? Oh, wow, I'm sorry. I, I, didn't, realize, I didn't realize I had gone on for that. Gone on for that long, sorry. Can we, do you think we can take two more? If, I, if, I, if I'm brief, okay, I'll be brief. I'll be brief, I'm sorry. I'll Thank you very much. I'm young team from South Korean Embassy. Actually, you just mentioned the Jetong and he needs some kind of uh, high quality partner instead of just transactional partners. Yeah. Actually, now some some people are talking about the possibility of Russia and China alliance. Although I don't think you know that is a kind of possible crossing option. How do you evaluate the you know evolution of the Russia-China relationship in the future? Yeah, I'm I'm really I, I'm glad you brought up this question because it's something that I actually wanted to. Um, it's something that I, I meant to discuss and I forgot. Um, I think that the Sino-Russian. Uh, well, first of all, I wouldn't characterize it as an alliance. Um, I think that so I think that China and Russia are increasingly aligned. But they are not allied, and I, it may seem like a sort of a, just a semantic or pedantic difference, but I think it's actually a very important one. I think if I had to distill down the, the sort of the, the Sino-Russian relationship to what I think it's its essence, it's a paradox. 
It's a relationship that is simultaneously more robust, but also more asymmetric in China's favor. So more robust. I mean, you look at two-way trade, it's going up. You look at joint military exercises, they're growing in number and sophistication. You look at uh, the number of visits between Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping. I, I think that, uh, I believe that, that Chairman Xi has visited uh, uh, President Putin more than he's visited any other foreign leader. So no, pretty much no matter what dimension of relations you look at, I think that the Sino-Russian relationship is going from strength to strength. But a relationship, and, and as, I, I, as I suggested, I think it can simultaneously be stronger and more asymmetric. Um, well, first of all, um, China and history are both very historically minded, and uh, China, uh, China recognizes that it suffered at the hands of Russia in centuries past, and those, those memories don't, don't disappear. Despite their newfound amity, those historical memories don't just disappear overnight, number one. So I think historical suspicions loom large. Um, two, uh, Cold War and Cold War era suspicions also loom large. Also, the reality is that just the economic gap between the two countries is, is growing apace. So according to the data that I, I looked at, I think that when I last checked, I think it was in 2018, but in 2018, China's economy was roughly eight times large in absolute size as Russia's economy, and in 2018, China's growth rate was roughly four times as large as that of Russia's. So when you have those types of data, so the snapshot, it's eight times as large, the picture, it's growing, its growth rate is four times as large, Russia recognizes that it depends on China far more than the other way around. Now, I don't think that, I don't think that China is going to I think that China welcomes its relationship with Russia. I don't think that it sees any need to rupture its relationship with Russia, but it recognizes that as that economic gap grows, that vis-a-vis uh, -vis Russia, that it can squeeze Russia more and more to get more favorable terms on arms shipments, more favorable terms on energy shipments. And Russia, I think, is miscalculated. You know, I think that Russia had hoped, look, okay, look, post Crimea in particular, uh, we are. Uh, let's just forget about this notion, this kind of antiquated notion of trying to reintegrate ourselves into the West. That no, that that dream is basically gone. We really need to double down on our relationship with China. But at the same time that they were doubling down on their relationship with China, they were simultaneously, they were doing it within the frame of this kind of eastward pivot. So sort, of, sort of Russia's kind of, you know, far, uh, you know Russia's look east uh, uh, strategy. And, but there are limits to how far it can go in terms of building its relations with Japan, with South Korea, with India, because Japan, India, South Korea, and others, incidentally, also happen to be very, very wary of China. So China will give them a leash. China will give them a leash, but it's a short leash. And if, and if China judges, that Russia is going too far in extending its relationships with countries that have somewhat antagonistic or fraught relations with China, it can say, look, you, you probably don't want to do that because we can rein you in. So I think that I think that Russia is feeling squeezed on the one hand by the recognition that it is increasingly uh, isolated from the West, but it also there are very, very sharp limits to what it can do as it looks east. It's an increasingly asymmetric relationship with China. And so this is why when I talk about China, no, when I talk about Russia, I think that Russia is tactically very nimble. I don't think that it. I don't think that it, it is a strategic grandmaster. And again, I, I would distinguish between strategic foresight and, and tactical agility. So I think it is a relationship that is getting stronger, but it's more asymmetric. One point that I would make from the since we were discussing great power competition, I do worry if you look at the national security strategy and the national defense strategy. And I don't know if the authors of those strategies did so wittingly, but it's kind of striking the number of times that China and Russia are placed in immediate juxtaposition. China and Russia are doing this. China and Russia are undermining U.S. national interests. Now, that, that statement is true. China and Russia both are undermining or undercutting U.S. national interests, but they're doing so in very different ways. They're doing so with very, very different long-term strategic objectives, and they're doing so in very different ways. And I think, that it's, I think it's imperative for the United States not to take actions or not to, to make declarations or take steps that would actually hasten this ongoing alignment between China and Russia. Now, some people will say, or some observers will say, well, look, Independent of what the United States does or, or did, 
China and Russia were going to converge anyway. And that's true, but the slope of that alignment matters. I think that absent U.S. absent U.S. involvement in bringing them closer together, maybe the vector of rapprochement had a slope that was somewhat gentle like this. And I think that by so in, by unwittingly or not, but by placing China and Russia so often in the same sentence and placing them under this uh, this banner of great power competition, mm -hmm. we were taking what was a gentle slope of rapprochement, and, and I think that we're accelerating that vector. And so I, I think that we need to be we need to be careful not to take actions that end up redounding against us. So uh, so yeah, those are those are a few thoughts. Yeah. Can we do one more? The last one. Oh, okay. One, um, so one or two more. Why not? Because I, I, I saw a question up here, and these are friends, so I, I, I did I wanted two to take a question. Okay. I have two questions, um, and I'll let you pick which one you want to answer. Based on what you were just uh, um, kind of extolling, uh, the would you foresee, it probably have to be post-Putin, but would you uh, ever foresee uh, a kind of 1970s-like um, detente with Russia, uh, these, you know, against, uh, kind of against China? Is that something that you would ever foresee as kind of a strategic you know, kind of offset? Uh, and then two, you were also earlier discussing uh, potential you know, kind of ways that we can better position ourselves to compete. Um, and uh, one of the, what well, I didn't mention, but, um, but I would imagine you would concur with is kind of getting the public awareness uh, and, and traction with the, with the American constituent. Um, how might we better do that? And, and uh, is it something that our leadership can do? I mean, China's been eating a lunch for you know, 20 years of leadership finally catching on to that. But in order to get real policy changes, real kind of resource, you know, resourcing uh, allocation and whatnot, um, I think we need, it's gonna require the American voter to kind of get on board with the idea. Is that something that our leaders need to um, you know, kind of scream from the hilltops, or is that something that's going to eventually develop because something in the relationship between the U.S. and China gets that bad that it eventually brings that about? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to succumb to my temptation. I was hoping that there would only be one question that I wanted to say something about, but I, both of them are, are such important questions, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to talk about both of them. Um, so for the first one, I think that it, if, I think for the first, there was certainly hope that you know, that the Trump administration, and there was, and there still is talk now, you know, might the Trump administration orchestrate some kind of reverse Nixonian strategy? So in, during the Cold War, you know, an explicit rationale, uh, an explicit rationale for the Nixon administration's opening China was to hive off China and kind of have a U.S.-China, not, not an alliance, but a U.S.-China coalition of sorts to, to, to further uh, contain Soviet power. And the hope is that now, you know, Russia is increasingly worried about this. Russia is increasingly worried about China's growing penetration of Central Asia economically, it's growing sort of repopulation of Russia's sparsely populated Far East, and the hope is that if Russia, increasingly concerned by the growing asymmetry in the relationship, would decide, hey, we need to band together with the United States against kind of a common adversary. And I think, again, the, there is a logic that obtains, but, but I, I, I still am I'm skeptical of that, that that type of gambit would succeed for a number of reasons, or for a couple that I'll mention. The first is that in order for that gambit to succeed, the, the, the hypothetical success of that gambit requires a certain level of affinity between the United States and Russia that right now, given, given President Trump's own personal affinities, uh, there may be some opening, but sort of a kind of a leader-to-leader, -leader sort of you know, head-to-head -head kind of affinity between President Putin and President Trump. But it's almost, you can say with near certainty that the next president, so whether President Trump is re-elected, whether he's not, but it's almost a certainty that the next president, um, even if the next president believes that we need to pursue some kind of detente with Russia, but just given how fraught the domestic politics of this rapprochement with Russia have been, the next president will feel enormous political pressure to be very, very adamantly anti-Russia. And so if I'm, if I'm Vladimir Putin, or if I'm, if I'm, I'm uh, Vladimir Putin's you know, potential you know, successor, I'm thinking to myself, look, 
the next president is going to have no appetite, politically or otherwise, to, to do this kind of triangular diplomacy. And so if I'm going to make something happen, it's going to be while, while, president Trump, while President Trump is in office. But President Trump can only go so far in pursuing the rapprochement with Russia. He's hemmed in by Congress. And Congress has pushed back very, very strongly against this kind of this U.S.-China rapprochement. So even, even with a president who is, I think, somewhat more you know, personally you know, fond of uh, or, or, or aligned with President Putin, um, there are very, very severe institutional constraints. So that, that would be point one. So I think that I would say even if I, I have a certain window of opportunity, it won't happen because of congressional opposition. Um, but the second point is um, I, I think that Russia feels that just if you look at the sort of the big picture, the big picture is um, America is relatively in decline. China is relatively ascendant. Yes, it has a number of formidable obstacles, internal and external, but China, if you just look at the rate of economic growth, you look at just sort of where the action is, for lack of, for lack of a more elegant phrase. I think that Russia feels that its, its longer-term path to resuscitation is far more likely to lie in building this relationship with China, even, if, even an increasingly asymmetric one, than in trying to uh, sort of reintegrate itself into the West. I mean, I remember you know, 10 years ago, there was much more of a discussion about, look, Russia sees itself as a Western power. Despite its current skirmishes with the West, it's going to hopefully hold out hope and try to reintegrate itself in the West. I don't see that calculus obtaining anymore. So I, I think the likelihood, so on, on your first question, I think the likelihood of a kind of a, a reverse Nixonian strategy, I, I think, is quite, quite unlikely. Um, on the second point, um, there was actually a, uh, an essay that came out in Foreign Affairs maybe two weeks ago, two or three weeks ago, by Richard Fontaine, the head of the Center for a New American Security. And he talked explicitly about this point. He said that the American public just said there's a huge gap between the, the priorities, the, the foreign policy priorities of the national security establishment and, and those of the American public. So, and, and this has kind of been sort of an animating point of our conversation this evening. You know, the, American, uh, the American foreign policy establishment, Republican, Democrat, Independent, has been seized with this notion of great power competition. We need to deal with the revanchist Russia. We need to deal with the resurgent China. I just don't think the American public is there. And if you look at, I mean, take China. If you look at polling, 60% of Americans, according to a very recent uh, Chicago Council on Global Affairs poll, 60% of Americans have unfavorable views of China. And that's the highest, the highest figure since the Chicago Council on Global Affairs began asking Americans, what do you think of China? But in that same poll, in that very, very same poll, when asked, okay, well, given this sentiment, how would you propose a deal with China? Roughly 30% of Americans say we need to, act, we need to take measures to thwart China's continued dissent, but 60% prefer engagement. Engagement is almost a taboo word in, in D.C. We don't talk about engagement. Now. We talk about, even if we don't use the word containment, and some people are saying we actually need to, but the emphasis is on cooperation is kind of a fool's errand. It's, that was sort of illusory thinking. Our assumptions about China were wrong. We need to take a much more aggressive tone. The American public isn't there yet. And so my answer to the question is, um, until... So the question, and, and there's always been a discrepancy, I should say, between the, the priorities, or there's always been some measure of discrepancy between the American foreign policy establishment's priorities and those of the public. Um, I just don't think that the American public right now is on board. I was actually just at an event at the Chicago Council a few days ago, and I was asking uh, Dina Smeltz, who is one of their principal pollsters, and she has a lot of great work on this topic, and I asked her after the event, I said, you know, what do Americans think about great power competition? And she said, it's just an abstraction, it's a buzzword. So, you know, when I... I grew up in a small town in Virginia. It's the same way. If I, you know, when I go back home, if I were to talk about the liberal international order or great power competition, people would smack me around and say, "Ali, what are you talking about?" You know, I, let's talk about my day-to-day -day material realities. Let's talk about my lived experiences. And if if a liberal world order could help my material realities, I'm all for it. But otherwise, it's just more more nonsense coming from 
you know, from D.C. So I think there's a huge gap, um, and I don't see, even though Americans are increasingly apprehensive about China, um, I just, right now, I, I just think that that gap, I, I don't see any, um, I, I don't see any uh, likelihood in the short term, um, unless, unless Americans come to believe that China poses an existential threat. But right now, we're not doing duck and cover drills. You know, my, my parents grew up doing duck and cover drills. We're not doing duck and cover drills. China is selectively revisionist. It's not posing a frontal assault on the post-war order. And even though it does pose very severe challenges to U.S. national interests, I don't think that it, I don't think that the threat that it poses is as evident or as singular as the type of threat that the Soviet Union did. And until and unless that reality obtains, I, I think that that chasm between the public and the establishment will persist. Sorry. Last question. Sorry. Sorry. Um, the, uh, I like your framing of competition being means, not an end. Um, one thing I thought about, competition is usually cast in bilateral terms, which is a pretty narrow way to think about things because, um, you know, the, the ideal is we set up an environment in which the environment is working in our favor and it's generating prosperity in our favor because we can only do so much. We only have so much bandwidth. And so uh, the post-war international order generated tremendous activity that benefited us and were generally in our interest. And so um, one way to think about it could be that we're competing for the design of the order. Mm -hmm. And we, you know, the U.S. would have this vision of a liberal order uh, where uh, yeah, so we have a presence uh, sort of around the world, but we aren't doing everything directly. It's an emergent behavior of the world system. Then the other would be um, a Chinese world order, and you could imagine what that looks like. And uh, the U.S. potentially has more appeal because of our values, um, which you had brought up. Uh, so we can speak to freedom, we can speak to liberty. Um, I wonder, are the Chinese, is there, are the Chinese moving in that direction? Um, so the Belt and Road certainly seems like it, but um, one, is that a possible end state that we're competing for the order? And then second, is that a track the Chinese appear to be on, or are they heading in this direction? I think you're, I think you're absolutely right. It is a, it, this is fundamentally a competition over Theories of power, theories or you know, theories of power, frameworks of order. You know, my, my instinct is, and, and maybe I'm, I'm you know, betraying a certain naivety, but it's a lot of you know, I became of age sort of during the peak of post-border triumphalism, and so a lot of the assumptions that undergird my worldview have now been falling apart like dominoes in in, in rapid uh, succession. And so, you know, who knows? Maybe my optimism about uh, about this question is is also misplaced. But at least right now. I mean, there's a difference between an order that is creaky, and I think that we all agree that the U.S.-led order is is increasingly creaky. But there is at least an order of which to speak. When you say, "What is the Chinese? What what is what is the Chinese alternative? What does an affirmative Chinese coherent successor or alternative to the American-led order look like?" It's not clear to me what the pillars are. Interestingly, I remember about maybe around circa the time of the financial crisis, there was a lot of talk about the Beijing consensus. You don't hear much of that discussion anymore. Uh, what you hear a lot about is, um, so this is interesting. So when you know, when Chairman Xi gives speeches about global governance, about you know world order, uh, he doesn't talk about the universality of a Beijing, of, of a of an alleged Beijing consensus. 
what he says is, look, look at the underperformance of industrialized democracy. So I'm not telling you that Beijing has all the answers and certainly wouldn't presume to say that I'm going to export them, but there are other ways. The United States said that it had all the right answers, right? End of 1989, it was the end of history. Capitalism and democracy were going to be inexorably ascending. Globalization was going to be inexorably ascendant. And now look what we're seeing in industrialized democracies. Uh, anemic rates of growth, uh, partisan uh, uh, tribalism, which is intensifying, income inequality, wealth inequality, booming. So we're seeing a number of cancers internally that are eating away at these industrialized democracies. So there must be another way. So I think that what China is selling, China is not selling, at least as far as I can discern right now, it's not so much selling a positive, and I'm, I'm not saying positive in a, in, a, in a normative sense, positive just in an objective sense, it's not selling a positive conception of order that says, here's an alternative, here are the pillars. It's offering a negative conception of order that says, it's basically saying, here are all the reasons why industrialized democracies are underperforming. Here are the weaknesses of the US-led order, so presumably there must be another way. Um, whether the Chinese are trending in that direction, it's, it's interesting. I think that China faces a number, China faces this really interesting dilemma. On the one hand, it wants to be a great power, and it is by, by many metrics, it is a great power. If you look at it, it has the world's second largest economy, probably soon to be the first. It has the world's second largest defense budget. Uh, it's one of those five permanent members of the, the UN Security Council. So by a number of metrics, it is a great global power, but it has this kind of identity problem. So when you say, when China is excluded from a given forum or from a given decision-making platform, it says, we're, we're a great power, we're a global power, look, and we, you know, we want to have places in these institutions and places at these tables that are commensurate with our growing heft. And then countries say, okay, welcome, round of applause, you're at the table, now we expect you to undertake, or we would like you to undertake responsibilities commensurate with that newfound place at the table. And they say, well, we want to focus, we're developing. So it's this very interesting dissonance that how can you simultaneously or selectively be developed but developing, depending on when the circumstances are more expedient? Are you a developed or a developing power? Are you a great power or a weak power? Are you secure or are you insecure? Um, are you focused primarily on internal issues or external issues? And so I think, one, there's an identity kind of challenge, and I think that, that challenge will grow more salient. Um, I still am not sure that China settled in its own mind to the extent that we can, you know, if we had a crystal ball, uh, that we could discern what their motivations are. I think that in an ideal world, China would be able to continue reaping the benefits of the current system because it has benefited tremendously by, the, by virtue of integration. Um, it would, over time, uh, establish a more Eurasian-centric global order at which it would sit at the center. Uh, but it wouldn't necessarily have to undertake. It doesn't, I don't think it wants to be a global policeman. It's seen how the United States has hemorrhaged trillions upon trillions of dollars, tens of thousands of lives, has lost its strategic focus in the Middle East in this ever-expanding war on terrorism. I don't think it wants to be a global policeman. I think it wants to be more of an economic linchpin. And so if you take all of those vectors together, sort of what the, what the resulting vector is. So it wants to be an economic, economic linchpin. It doesn't want to be global policemen. It wants to be seen as a great power, but it doesn't necessarily want the limelight that would come with if it were to become the world's preeminent power. There's a lot of dissonance, I think, in China's own thinking. And so the resulting vector is, un is unclear. But what I would say is that, yes, China is certainly pointing out flaws in the U.S. postal order. It's pointing out underperformances in industrialized democracies. But I have yet to see what the contours of a, a Chinese-led world order would look like. And to the extent that we are getting indications in that direction, I think that they're getting pushed back. I think that, I think that observers, not only in China's immediate periphery, but abroad, are concerned about what happens if a Chinese surveillance state goes global. What happens if uh, censorship goes global? What happens if 
various forms of repression of ethnic and or religious minorities goes global. And so China, on the one hand, it wants to be, it wants to expand and it wants its footprint to grow, but I think it's not necessarily going to like the, the pushback that it gets if it really says, okay, we, the United States has fallen, China is, is, has moved to center stage, and now the spotlight is, is cast quite harshly on China, so it might not like the results. So it results in a somewhat dissonant, I think, Chinese foreign policy, and it's not clear to me that China has resolved, or that Chinese leader.